Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by David Knox, Senior Partner at Mercer, and Maria Wilton, Vice Chair of the CFA Institute Board of Governors. This conversation looks at the Mercer CFA Global Pension Index for 2020. This index benchmarks 39 retirement systems across 38 countries and looks at 50 indicators. This conversation looks at the purpose of the index, where Australia ranks, what Australia can do better in improving its rank, some of the pressures and risks facing pension systems around the world, the ultimate responsibility for good pensions, whether it should be the government, employers or individuals, and finally, how can Australia improve its score given that this year it's actually fallen slightly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's a fabulous opportunity for for Mercer now to take this pension index globally. David, if you want to give a bit of context about the evolution of this global pension index and what does it mean to have CFA becoming involved? Sure, very happy to do that. The origin of this global pension index was in 2009 with funding from the Victorian government. And for 11 years, it was known as the Melbourne Mercer Global Pension Index, increasing from looking at 11 systems And this year, we look at 39 systems. It's really fantastic that the CFA Institute is now our principal sponsor, and the name of the index is now the Mercer CFA Institute Global Pension Index. The purpose of the index is really to benchmark global pension or retirement income systems. Every pension system is different, but we're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to give people better living standards in retirement and to make sure they have enough financial security. So through the combination of questions covering covering adequacy, sustainability and integrity, we ask more than 50 questions about the system for each country. We rank these systems and we want to learn from each other because there's no system that's perfect and there is no system that can be transplanted directly from one country to another because every country has their own cultural, historical, economic backgrounds. So let's learn the lessons from the better systems and then think about how we can apply them and improve the systems in each country. One thing that um, I'm curious around in terms of the systems is the politics of the systems. Is is that a a big part of the questioning that, that goes on as well? Now, in terms of the politics, we ask objective data or objective questions A little bit more than half the index comes from data from international agencies such as OECD, World Bank, United Nations. And then when we drill down into questions relating to governance or system design, we ask our Mercer colleagues about the system in their country. Uh, For instance, is it a requirement that the pension systems or the pension funds are audited? Now, you'd think that's an obvious answer, yes, But in South Korea, the answer is no, it's not a requirement. We ask other questions about governance and about design to try and drill down and look at how the system operates and how the better systems operate. Mm -hmm. Maria, maybe you can give a bit of context around the CFA and how the CFA sees this global pension index and and talking to its broader members and, and cohort. Sure. 
Um, I mean, I think I see it as a marriage made in heaven. Uh, we know that uh, retirement incomes is a primary focus of uh, of, of many investors, uh, and so it's a, it's it is our our natural um, area of, uh, of 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 advocacy uh, and and of interest. So, just in terms of what the CFA brings to the table. Um, we are global, but also local. So we have a global organisation with very strong infrastructure that really commands respect um, across uh, across the world in terms of the you know the major the, the board tables and, and with the regulators. Uh, but we also have um, local societies um, in over 160 markets with people on the ground that you know truly understand what's going on in the local system. So if you put those two things together, I think we will be able to significantly, um, I think, step up in terms of, of advocacy uh, and uh, and and just wanting to you know influence regulators and policymakers to get uh, to, to make improvements to their systems. Just continuing on on the advocacy part, obviously David mentioned at the start that there's so much uh, difference between different systems, different backgrounds, different cultures. You know, how does the I guess CFA think about the the advocacy to the each individual country? Is that through the societies that you help to then improve these these systems? Yes, yeah, so that's what we've done. We've organised um, we've organised the launches regionally, and we have local societies that will take the, the, the running in terms of on the ground um, advocacy and promotion of the index. I mean, the, as David said at the outset, the idea of the index is to you know, throw a spotlight on, on issues and areas for improvement. And that's something that I guess is just is core to the, to the CFA mission um, and the local societies are integral to that. Uh, so just kind of getting that, um, having that balance between the um, the, the CFA Institute, which really brings the, the infrastructure, um, the, the policy expertise um, and the respect from, uh, from regulators and policymakers, uh, with the, coupled with the, the local societies, people on the ground that, uh, that have you know, tremendous expertise, um, but also great passion to make, to make a difference um, in, their, um, in their local markets. I think, I think that augurs very well for the influence that we can have in terms of uh, improving outcomes. Mm-hmm. David, you know you, you've talked about the evolution of this of this pension index from eleven countries to to eleven systems countries. I don't know if there's multiple systems per country, um, but is there been an evolution in terms of the questions that you're you're asking? You know the, these particular uh, countries. Certainly, um, it is thirty nine systems covering thirty eight countries, and the difference is China. China is one country with two systems. So in fact, we have the mainland China system as well as the Hong Kong system. That's the subtlety. We're trying to improve the system, uh, sorry, the index every year by broadening the the question, digging into some areas where we haven't explored before. And let me give you a couple of examples from this year. Firstly, we have always looked at the government debt question because future government debt will impede future government pensions. If the debt is too high, the government will have to constrain their expenditure. But in an era of very low interest rates, government debt is less important. So this year we've added a question, not only about debt, but about the government expenditure on pensions as a proportion of GDP, because the pension outflow will be there, whatever the debt. So we're looking at not only debt, but cash flow. We've also added a couple of other 
questions. Uh, one relates to whether the pension system supports those who are taking time out of the workforce to care, particularly to care for young children. So if you take a couple of years out to care for young children, in some systems you get some additional pension benefits. In Australia, you don't. Um, but that's an important part of tackling the gender pension gap. The other question we've added this year relates to ESG. And ESG is obviously becoming a more important part of the whole investment scene. And we've seen that in some countries, ESG is now a required component or a necessary part of the investment strategy of pension funds, whereas in many systems, it's not. One one thing I wanted to touch on there, and I guess it's a it's a bit of a contentious issue, is around government debt and their ability to pay pensions. Um, I'm probably going to take this down a, a wild rabbit hole, but we've we've heard a lot about MMT and the ability of governments to be able to fund this. You know, how much do you think about that ability? You know, when you're talking about governments' ability to fund pensions. Well, every country and every government is obviously different. If you take Norway, for instance, they've got an oil fund which is supporting the government coming from, in effect, their oil royalties. Um, we just look at the government debt as a proportion of GDP, of that economy's GDP. The higher the debt, such as Japan, um, then we would think longer term that's going to have a constraint on government expenditure. But as I said this year, we don't just look at debt, but we also look at cash flow, looking at the proportion of GDP that the government is paying on public pensions, in the Australian context, that is uh, quite small, around 3% of GDP. Um, you look at many European countries, it's more than 10% of GDP. So it's trying to get that comparison or that benchmark in place so we can look at different systems and the implica implications of that. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned can I, that... Can I just add to that, Alex, um, just in terms of that private versus public provision? Obviously, with COVID, governments have... Um, have um, have been using all of their, the tools that they have around fiscal policy. Uh, and, and they're really not going to be so much in a situation to enhance uh, or potentially even maintain the, the public provision side of the retirement system. So I think it's really the, the, the focus in terms of the future um, as a result of this should be on the private provision uh, part of, uh, of the pension system, that particular pillar. Um, and to that end, uh, it makes a lot of sense um, to continue with the scheduled increase in the superannuation guarantee, that being the, the private part um, of that, that private provision pillar of our system being the, the superannuation guarantee. Mm -hmm. oh, I understood. Uh, David, you also mentioned there about the, the ESG components. You know, I guess, can you give a bit more context around what trustees need to consider there? Well, I think the question we asked was whether it was a requirement to do it, but Maria is probably better positioned to respond to the ESG. Sure. So ironically, uh, Australia actually gets a no in relation to the question that's, uh, that's, in the, uh, that's in the index. But yet Australia is a real global leader uh, in terms of ESG. It's just that the, the question, in, and in order to, I guess, be objective, the question that was used this year was, um, you know, do the, are, the, are you required from a regulatory perspective to take ESG into account? We know that Australia is a leader. Um, we were very early... Um, 
uh, take, you know, we, we picked up on the UNPRI very quickly. We have the investors group on climate change. There are a whole number of, I guess, collaborative, um, collaborative organisations and entities that focus on ESG. What we do know that in uh, the, the environment that, that we are um, moving into is that investment stewardship um, is very, very important. Um, and that we increasingly need to look at all of the levers that we have in, in terms of um, extracting um, the best risk-adjusted returns that we can um, for, for our members. And so I think ESG is, is very important and will continue to be important. There was some talk at the outset oh, with, with, uh, with COVID that that would be pushed to one side. Well, in fact, the reverse has happened. It's absolutely at the forefront um, as, as trustees and investment teams are looking to extract um, every um, every penny that they can um, from the investments that they make and investment stewardship um, and active engagement is an important part of that. Are there any, Maria, good examples of, of countries where they are able to integrate ESG well? Uh, David, you'll, you'll have to help me out in terms of the countries that do it well. I'm not sure who actually got the, the, got the yes in terms of the, the question in the index construction. Yeah. Um, there are a number of uh, Northern European countries where it's a requirement to take into account ESG. Um, and I think, as I said, we try and improve the index each year. Next year, we're going to tweak the question a little bit, just not to make it a legislative requirement, but to also look at the regulator's input, if you like. And in the Australian context, APRA has been quite outspoken in terms of climate change and other ESG factors. So we try to be objective, you know, what is in the legislation, but sometimes there's a nuance to it. And I think in, in terms of the ESG factor, which will become, I believe, more and more important as time goes on, uh, there is a nuance. And we probably learnt this year that in ESG, it's just not, is it a legal requirement, but is it normal practice? What does the regulator say, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but clearly in Europe, ESG is, um, just part of the uh, architecture now, if you like, uh, much less so in um, the Americas. And when I talk about the Americas, I mean both North and Latin America and less so in Asia. Um, many of the Asian pension systems are still very much developing, evolving. Um, so they're trying to get the infrastructure right uh, and not, they haven't yet got to the ESG position. Well, I guess the other challenge there around the regulation piece is around the fiduciary duty rule. If that's not clear, it is very hard for some people to operate where they say, hold on a second, I don't want to breach that, uh, I, but yet I want to be aware and yes, I want to have good investment stewardship. So it's quite a delicate balance for them. Oh, absolutely right. And one of the objective governance questions we ask is, is it a requirement that the trustee board for judiciaries have a conflict of interest policy? Now, you know, a good trustee board will have a policy in that respect, but when the system's just beginning and there's very little experience, um, that's much harder to bring in at the outset. So the next thing, I guess, in terms of the coverage, obviously COVID-19 has had a huge impact on, on pension systems, and we briefly alluded to it around fiscal policy that many governments are going to have to, to help out. You know, how else has COVID-19 um, affected a number of the pension systems? We saw in Australia early release. Um, is sure. one way. What else? Yeah, there's been lots of effects of COVID-19 and these have both been short-term and long-term. Uh, let me look at the beginning, to begin with the, the, the funds themselves, the pension funds. There's been an impact on contributions because with more unemployment, there's less contributions. We've also had some countries freeze contributions or reduce contributions. 
for a period of time. Um, we've had an impact on investment earnings. Uh, that's fairly obvious with low interest rates, um, some asset values have declined um, and, and so forth. We've also seen in, uh, member switching. Uh, when we have a, a financial crisis, some members switch from growth to defensive portfolios, even to cash. And the members who do that often do it after the market has crashed. So it's too late. And then they come back in, but of course they've crystallized their losses um, at that point. Not a lot of members, but a number of countries we've seen that behavior. Um, we've seen, as you mentioned, Alex, uh, early release of superannuation benefits in Australia, $35 billion taking it out. We've seen that in other countries where the rules have been relaxed a little bit. Um, Spain, the US, for example. So that's uh, lower returns, less contributions, early release, all means less assets going forward. Um, on top of that, um, migration uh, has a, a broader impact on the economy. And Australia is a good example of that, where we look as if we're going to have uh, negative migration for the first time in 100 years. Um, that's going to have an economic impact. It's going to have an investment impact. So there's a number of negative impacts, both short-term and long-term, on the development of the assets. And then we move into retirees who in Australia will take their super balance and invest it. Some retirees are quite risk averse. And where do they put their money? In the bank, term deposits and the like. When you look at the interest rates on term deposits at the moment, just a tad over 1% if you're fortunate, um, that's not going to build up much. There's no compound interest really happening uh, there. So I think we're going to see uh, reduced benefits coming out of the super system in real dollars. And then we have a question as to what behavior will that lead to? Will people uh, try and work a little bit longer, if that's possible? Uh, will it mean that they'll look for high risk investments to get the returns that they have become accustomed to? Or will indeed they settle for a lower standard of living in retirement? So these are questions that we have to think about uh, going forward. Alternatively, I think our super fund industry now has the opportunity to engage with members and say, well, we help three or 4 million of you uh, during COVID, you've taken out your 15 or $20,000. Now, what about putting some money back in over time to bring you back to where you would have been? So it's at the moment it's adverse and it's negative around the world, but I think there's a responsibility on the industry to start to engage with members and help to bring them back to where they would have been. Mm -hmm. Just just on that, Alex, you know, I think the early release scheme did uh, what you know was a bit of a test around the robustness of the systems and processes that the funds uh, had in place. Uh, it was a test of, uh, you know, the liquidity, that whether they were actually able to come up with the liquidity. And I think that we absolutely, the Australian system absolutely passed that test with flying colours. Um, just in terms of, uh, of, of what happened in markets, there was obviously a lot of uh, dislocation in markets. Markets were gapping at the outset. There's been quite significant dispersion in terms of individual stock returns. So, that is a happy hunting ground for active managers when there is that market dislocation. So 
generally, you would say that um, that good fundamental active managers should do well um, in the environment that uh, that that's created. Uh, although I think that some of the changes that were announced um, in the Commonwealth budget actually, you know, will encourage um, investment strategies in the in a more more passive uh, more passive fashion. But just in terms of that volatility that we saw in markets that created a lot of opportunity was um, you know was was potentially quite positive for uh, active managers and particularly fundamental active managers. You both have raised an interesting point there, which comes back to investment returns. Now, if you look at the the US market, it's recovered quite substantially. The Australian market re- recovered most of it, but there are a lot of other countries where they haven't been able to recover. You know, what what link do you see between performance of the market and also the performance of the pension system? Because there is this home bias that we typically see. Uh, I mean, the the, the two are, are inextricably linked. I mean, in terms of obviously, it's very positive for retirement outcomes if we have um, you know strong returns in markets, and we know that. Or where there's a, we don't know anything when it comes to future market returns. Nothing. We know nothing. Um, but we have a strong expectation that interest rates will be lower for longer, and that has um, implications for total portfolio construction and and, and where we go um, in in the future. But we we can't say that because of COVID, you know, we're in a low return environment. I reject that proposition. Uh, we're in a we're in a in an environment we think where interest rates will be lower for longer. Um, because that's what uh, that's what governments and central banks want and need. Um, but just in terms of equity markets, uh, you know, you should always expect the unexpected, and I think that we've seen that. I haven't uh, I haven't seen a general trend for there to be downgrading um, of, of long term capital market assumptions, uh, returns from equities. I have I have not seen that trend. Uh, I think that uh, that um, you know. The funds have been quite disciplined around asset allocation uh, and uh, and kind of sticking to their knitting and taking a long-term view. And I think that augurs well for future investment returns. Yeah, I, I might just uh, add a, a postscript to that. Um, and these many individual members look at returns in nominal terms. You know, is it five, six or seven? Um, what's really important is real returns above CPI, if you like. And CPI is low and probably will remain low for a while. So even if the nominal returns come down a little bit, the real returns will still may still be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the reason I, I raise the question is there's obviously a, a, a cognitive bias that people have when they see the market doing well over the last few years. They're willing to, to put more money in. When the markets aren't doing so well, they're probably more likely to to stop pulling money in or feel more comfortable to try and get an early release, as, as many people did. I guess, how do you then adjust for that sort of behavioural bias? Engage, engage, engage. I mean, it's really up to the, I think, to the funds um, to to use it, as David said, as an opportunity to engage with members. I mean, it has been disappointing, I think, to see. I mean, obviously, there has been genuine hardship. So people have been um, using the early release scheme because they are, you know, concerned about or, or do have genuine hardship. But we can't say that that's true universally. Um, so I think that we, there is still a lack of clarity around what the fundamental objective of super is. Um, hopefully we haven't, um, I guess, you know, un- opened that honeypot in terms of you know, what we can use superannuation, that pool of money for. Um, it is there for, um, for long-term retirement incomes. Um, so the, and the onus is on the industry to engage uh, and make sure that uh, fund members actually realise that 
um, that it's there for the it is there for the long haul, and that they understand that you know the benefits of compounding and compound return. It is interesting. Last year, when we did this survey, we also looked at the level of household debt versus the level of pension assets, and Australia has the second highest level of household debt as a proportion of GDP. And one of the reasons for that is that people understand super and they understand they have assets. Now, th this is a balancing act, um, but there's clearly is the more money you put into pensions around the world, people will use, borrow some of that in effect in advance for retirement. It's not dollar for dollar. It's probably less than 50 cents in the dollar. So even if you're saving in superannuation, most of that money will go into retirement, but some of it will end up paying off the mortgage when you retire. I want to touch on something, Maria, you raised around engagement from the fund perspective. But I guess if we think about it more globally, um, you know, the responsibility for good pensions, who really does take the biggest brunt or who's the most you know, important there? Is it the government? Is it the employer or is it the individuals or, or the fund, as, as you said? Um, maybe, David, you kick off. Well, I think it's important that the government sets the framework. And I think we need very clear objectives from the government. And I'm not sure within the Australian system and this, most systems don't have clear objectives. I hope we're going to get some uh, suggestion of clear objectives from the Retirement Income Review. But I think it's important that the government set those objectives and put out what we want from the system. Clearly, some major employers play an important role, but we also need to recognise there are many small employers who just getting on with their small business superannuation is just something that has to be done, but it's not a priority to them. And therefore, it is the role of the fund to educate, to inform, and educate in a way that members understand. Uh, sending out long bits of paper and email, people just don't read it. Um, so we need to think about how we communicate. Inevitably, and to build, up, build on something Maria said going forward, and this is true around the world, I think individuals have to take more and more responsibility for their own financial security going forward. Um, we have got aging populations around the world. Um, we've, and we talked about you know, high government debt, et cetera. So it's really important that people put money aside for the future, for their own retirement, and they understand that they need to do that, that we can't just rely on the government for our future pension, healthcare, and age costs. The government can't afford it. And that's it. Look, I completely agree with that, David, but I do think it's important just in terms of that private provision versus um, public provision. I do think it's important that governments globally provide a safety net. I mean, that is, um, you know, that's, uh, I think, a, a, a fundamental um, a fundamental thing that we need to, to consider. And, of course, the age pension is still critical to many people in Australia as well. Um, so it's important that we have that government-provided safety net, um, but that increasingly I think the focus um, as, as economies develop um, uh, and, and in developed economies already that we focus on that private provision given the pressure government budgets are going to be on uh, under into the future. In, in fact, our very first question in the adequacy sub-index is what's the level of your government pension if you have nothing else? And Australia does reasonably well there at about 27, 28% of the average wage. Um, you look at a country like the UK and the US, it's under 20%. So Maria's talked about the safety net. Our safety net is quite reasonable. Um, in fact, I'd say it's good, together with the fact that we have universal health through Medicare. So when you put that, those two together, 
and the government pays most of the aged care costs. So we've actually got quite strong government support for the older population. So I put the question back to you, David, with that support, that strong support from an aged care and and at least a a good support on a pension level, does that potentially take away from people, you know, wanting to do more, you know, personally? Well, well, it, it can, people can rely on, want to rely on the government, but I think our point is that going forward with ageing populations, uh, the government will not be able to afford to do what it's currently doing when we have a higher proportion of people aged over 70, 80, and indeed 90. Um, so there is a balance between public and private, and the Global Index certainly looks at that balance across the board. We don't just look at private pensions or super. We take the broad picture because it is a, a combined system. Mm-hmm. That actually feeds into the asset allocation of portfolios too. So, you know, if you actually, and there's some work that was done um, many years ago now, um, but if you if you include in, in a, a portfolio the, the fact that there is this indexed um, government-provided pension, then you can actually take more risk in the other areas of your portfolio. Um, and hence, Australia actually tended to have a higher allocation to growth assets um, than some other systems. And that's actually you know, perfectly reasonable from an asset allocation perspective, you know, if you take that, um, I guess, that kind of that, that, that fixed income likes um, age pension into account. Mm-hmm. So I guess the final question, and I, I'll go with you, David, to kick off. You know, Australia actually their score fell um, in twenty twenty versus twenty nineteen. Maybe a little bit of context on on why it fell, and and potentially then what it, what Australia could do to improve um, its sure. score. Well, I, I think one of the reasons the Australian score fell is that most scores fell in terms of sustainability, and that was linked to real economic growth. COVID had an impact on the economy. We're all in a recession, and one of the factors of sustainability is economic growth. Um, Another factor that our score fell was an updated set of numbers from the OECD on replacement rates. Um, They are taking into account the role of the assets test there, and the assets test is quite hard. And one of the things we've recommended is that the assets test should be moderated. In other words, to provide individuals with a, a stronger incentive uh, to save and not just recognise that, that the more they save, the less pension they'll get. I think the area where the Australian score could improve most is related to retirement income. We've done pretty well in accumulating money. I agree with Maria, let's go to 12% SG. But what we haven't done is converted that into a reliable income stream in retirement. So we need a focus on incomes. Um, There's no requirement in Australia to take annuities or income streams. You do what you like. The better systems, I'm not suggesting they have 100% annuity, but there's a focus on income streams. And part of that focus is a requirement that funds must provide benefit projections as people go through the system. When at age 30, 40, 50, what income am I likely to get from super? We don't do that. Some of the better funds do it, but it's not a requirement. In many countries that do well, it is a requirement. And that's certainly something I would strongly suggest. Mm -hmm. Maria, uh, final word? Yeah, Australia, thank you. I'd love to have the final word, Alex. 
Um, Australia ranks very well um, with respect to integrity. David, I think we are number four, is that right? Uh, we're, we're sixth on integrity and third on sustainability. But it's at yeah. So, it, so it, just in terms of the components in, in integrity, that goes to the strength of the regulatory framework. Can you trust the system? Um, you know, are our frameworks, uh, you know, solid? Are they robust? Uh, and we rank very well there. So I, I, I'm... I'm it is curious that in terms of a lot of the conversation we have, it's around the integrity of the system, it's around the governance arrangements, the representative trustee system. In fact, what David has just um, uh, has just articulated is that the where we need the improvement is on the adequacy side, not the integrity side. We do well in integrity. People can trust the system. It's a strong system. We, you know, I think, um, you know, we, we people should have confidence that their super fund is going to deliver um, what it says it's uh, it's going to deliver. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, David and Maria. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.